This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our own Alex Cortez loves to regularly bring us great stories about human freedom and what can happen when it's unleashed in our free economy. And let's take a listen to Alex's latest report. Tonight's first place winner will receive $1,500 to grow their business and further their education. Second place will be awarded $1,000 and third place $500. In addition, both first and second place winners will be flown to New York City in October to attend Nifty's National Youth Entrepreneurship Challenge and compete for the grand prize package. May 3rd, 2017, high school students in the St. Louis, Missouri region competed for real money. Hello, my name is Damon McKinney. It is my business partner. Right here, Larry. And for real businesses that they wanted to create. And we're here to introduce our business partner, the Double Backer Pack. The Double Backer Pack, what's that? Let me explain. It was just like Shark Tank. I like cash flow. Me Love too. it. I like the way it rolls off my lips. Cash flow. They presented before judges. To stop pretending and start profending. Woo! Love it, baby! The judges questioned them. Tell you, how much do they cost? They cost right now, they're $499.95. And the judges decided. I love you, but I'm out. I'll give you the 300 k for 10%, but I don't want to go through all this. If you want to work with me, say yes, and if not, I'll defer to everybody else. I drove up five hours from our studio in Oxford, Mississippi to get in on the action to meet these students who were courageous enough to put themselves out there and be scrutinized. The competition started at 6.30 p.m. and I arrived early at 12 p.m. to meet one of the competitors before their big night present their business, please welcome Raheem Larry and Damon McKinney from Normandy High School. That's all you're going to hear from their big night for now. Oh yeah, it's a tease. I was also there early to meet their teacher, Obino Coley, who was teaching their entrepreneurship class, where they learned how to create their business. And here is my report from that afternoon. I'm in my car outside of Normandy High School uh, here in the St. Louis area, and a couple years ago, the St. Louis uh, Post-Dispatch, the main newspaper here, said this was the most dangerous high school in the area, and the population in the area has declined by almost five-fold. More businesses here are shut than are open. There's more vacant storefronts than there are open storefronts. Uh, but there's a glimmer of promise here at this school in this entrepreneurship class uh, that's designed by Nifty, the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, and I wanted to check it out. Nifty focuses on bringing their entrepreneurship courses and summer boot camps to students in economically disadvantaged areas, like the ones surrounding Normandy High. And over 500,000 students have gone through their programs to date. Hey, Mr. Coley, Alex. Mr. Alex, nice to meet you. Hey, uh, interview. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I got, got you right. No. Hey, how are you? Hey. I'm Alex. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Nice to meet you. What's your name? What is it? Raheem. Raheem? Damon. Is it your lunchtime? Yes. Yeah? So you decided to practice instead? Mm-hmm. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I know. I like it. I first asked them about their childhood, and here's what Raheem thought 
was important to tell me. I'm born from Atlanta, originally Atlanta, Georgia, and I think that's why I first started being afraid of bees. Of bees? Yeah. I didn't expect you to say that. <laughs> no, Is this like a huge fear of yours? Yeah, like, whenever I say bee, I run <laughs> away from that spot. I don't like bee. But, well, this is really on the top of your mind. I'm, when I, I ask you about your childhood, the first thing you say is, uh, yeah, I'm afraid of bees. <laughs> I never got stung in the letter, but like that, I, they just were flying around me and I didn't like it. Well, Raheem wasn't going to be a bee entrepreneur, but I was curious what these guys' experience with entrepreneurship was like before taking this class. Have you guys known any entrepreneurs growing up? I don't think so. Mm, no, I don't think so either. No, no. And now they do. Their class traveled to meet an entrepreneur in his 3D printing shop, something I haven't seen yet and am pretty jealous about. And many of the competition's judges are entrepreneurs too, including the owner of St. Louis's semi-pro women's basketball team, The Surge. And although these guys hadn't really thought about entrepreneurship, they were in many ways already living it out before the class. Here's Raheem. Cut grass and yeah. uh, shovel snow, but lately we ain't had a great winter. <laughs> oh, you mean you didn't have a great winter in terms of a lot of snow? Yeah. Yeah. Most people would not consider that a great winter. It was a great winter when I was trying to shovel snow. <laughs> <laughs> For many, many years, this 14-year-old's been hustling like this. Now you want this baseball card? I get it to you for a dollar. <laughs> Raheem just didn't know about the economics of his enterprising. And thanks to his class, he now does and is saying things like this. It's fun to like sell something. Like you get, oh, I just sold that for $40. That's a big, big margin now. Yeah. Profit margin is new to his vocabulary. How awesome. And it's a lesson that will stay with him for the rest of his life. Concepts like profit margin that involve math make math real to students, often for the very first time in their lives. Because it's now not just something that's theoretical that they feel indifferent about. They now know that it's something that can actually affect them in their pocketbooks. At the beginning, we had like to make our own uh, pro- uh, like our own invention out of uh, the materials that we had used, but we didn't. We did it, but it wasn't, I wasn't really serious. Like, at the beginning of school, I wasn't really serious about entrepreneurship. You weren't very serious about it at the beginning of class? And you've become a lot more serious about it? Uh-huh. Why? Really, I think that day I really was surprised about my business. I, I really thought it was a great idea. Surprised about what this idea could mean for his future. And it helped him realize the potential he had inside of himself. That's the power of this class and a great idea. And when we come back, more with Alex and more with these young men and with Nifty and the great work they're doing across this country. This is Our American Stories, these boys' stories, when we continue.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Alex's story of two high schoolers in the St. Louis area, Rahim and Damon, and this is a tough neighborhood, but they're up to something really interesting, something unexpected, and it's an awesome entrepreneurship class that allowed all this to happen, sponsored by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. Let's go back. Each student in the nifty entrepreneurship class has to develop their very own business idea and write an entire business plan for it. Raheem's teacher told me that he had a lot of business ideas and frequently would email him at night with his latest one, which in his mind was always the greatest one, of course. That is, until another one came around. Have you thought about any businesses that you want to create? Uh, at first, I was doing. I wanted to do waterproof earbuds, like earbuds where you could go swimming underwater. Yeah, and that- it wouldn't like mess up your ear or electrocute you or nothing. Like it would actually waterproof, not water resistant or stuff like that. But then I had one day I just actually I had a basketball game and I asked my cousin could he hold some of my stuff. He was like, Nah, and I was like, All right, forget it. I just take two backpacks. And then I just got they double, like two sizes and double backpack all day. Like many great business ideas, Raheem's came from a need that he had in everyday life. And for him, it was because of an unkind cousin who we ought to think now. The double backer packer, as they call it, has one backpack on your back and another on your chest. And they're connected by shoulder straps. And what an apt and catchy name, the double backer packer. And older parents have especially loved this idea because it's more even distribution of book bag weight was a solution that their kids didn't have and have paid the price for. They tell us that they uh, children had that problem when they was in school and now they got back problems. So they give us encouragement. Now Raheem had enough foresight to know that he needed a partner. He was good at selling, but he wasn't a designer. And well, Damon was. You said you came up with the idea. Are you guys 50-50 partners then, or do you have more? 50-50. Yeah. Did you guys have to talk about that, or was it just assumed? We didn't really talk about it. Yeah. We just decided 50 Well, it's very generous of you, given you came up with the idea. I'm just messing around. You really need both, right? You need the design, and you need the idea, and you need someone who's good with the numbers. And It's always good to have two people. Like, you, you might have a good idea, but as one person, you probably won't succeed as much as you would if you had two people. I think if I didn't like have a partner, I don't think I would have been as serious as I am now. Just like a motivating factor, like yeah. you can't let him down? Yeah, like, like cause at first I'd probably slack off sometimes at the work, but if I got a partner, they encourage me or they get something done, I'll get something done another time. Yeah. Or we just both work it out. Once they became partners, they did some critical market research, also a new term to them. Was there a market need for the product outside of their own personal need, or what parents thought their kids need? And we see people in our own school wearing two book bags. But people, they, you see people in school wearing two book bags? Not front and back, but on their back. And then like they be hunching over. So one's for sports, or after yeah, school like activities, they, or they have cheerleading. Going or, on that day, they wear two but it ain't the product, it ain't a product, it's just them wearing two backpacks. 
They just had two separate bags and put all weight on their bag. That's why I'm trying to get padded. <laughs> These guys are trying to get a padded. They are on their game. Raheem actually went to the U.S. Patent Office's website. But he found the government website to be confusing. Go figure in how discouraging for a young entrepreneur. Did you have to do a competitive analysis in, in your part of your business plan? Like what else is out there in the market and if anyone comes close? Oh, I, I Like indirect yeah. Comp- yeah. competitors? Or yeah, indirect. Yeah. We have no direct competitors, but we do have two major indirect competitors. Which would be Eastport. Eastport, and Nike. Eastport makes normal backpacks for students and Nike makes athletic bags for athletes. But no one is targeting both in one transaction. Until now, and thus student athletes as their target market. Another concept they now know. But before selling to their target market, they gotta figure out how to actually make these things. We're not gonna actually make the little bags, but we gonna buy, like, half the people make it for us. Yep. And then, like, we gonna design it and make We're our own product. We're still in market research. Yeah. <laughs> these guys are a riot. They're still in market research for their manufacturer, but they think they got a pretty good idea of how much it's gonna cost. How about pricing? Have you guys settled on a price for the... Forty-nine, 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 ninety-nine. Okay, and how much is materials? Seven dollars. Seven dollars ten cents for materials and five dollars eleven cents. Wow! So that's a margin of thirty-seven dollars eighty. Um, eight nine cents. Good, good. You guys got your costs exactly down. Mm-hmm. Talk about precise. They are clearly ready for their big competition, but is the world ready for their big idea? Talk to people in the school or your friends about this idea. We took surveys. Most time they say it's a stupid idea, but I tell them just wait on. Okay. It'd be most of my most of my friends, <laughs> but I'll be telling them it's gonna be something. How are you gonna convince people to use it? Like it's it's such a foreign idea to people. We how go, how we are you gonna, gonna make it look fast? It's not just gonna be like a regular book bag. It's gonna be a regular book bag. But I, it's not gonna be a regular book bag on the front. We're gonna put it on the back. It's gonna look stylish. It's gonna make you want to wear it. So is it just you guys are gonna wear around the backpacks and everyone's suddenly gonna be like, wow, that's interesting? Or are you gonna pay some, try to get some celebrities? We gonna get Beyonce to wear. You know they're gonna wear it. All the things. LeBron James. Yeah. Do you know that some people literally send LeBron James's backpack for free and try to get him to use it? People take pictures of it in public, and all of a sudden, your your business is skyrocketing. We gonna get LeBron James, Beyonce to be in one picture, one and be like, hey, she'll be saying, I'm a single lady, and they go sitting, they just gonna buy it. He gonna make some threes, and people do. He gonna say, he gonna say, say, take us. Uh, would you like a sprite? He gonna say, would you like a double back? Backer backer, you know how he say that. What is he gonna say? Would you instead say, would you like a sprite? Because you know his sprite can. Stay here and say, would you like a double backer pack? I would never ask you to drink this, right? I would ask you to buy a double backer pack. I, no, I bet that up. I would never tell you to drink this, right? I'd ask you, I'd tell you to buy a double backpack. I'd ask you to drink this, right? This is going to be great. <laughs> That's the bottom line, right? This is going to be great. Yeah, and I'm, like, probably three generations of our family will not have to wait. <laughs> Except that, you, except that you want them to work. I mean, you know that story? That's so- a business. And that's why we created the LLC. You already created one? No, not yet. We, that's what we're going to do. We're making the business. We make it an LLC so that... Because our partnership, once both of us die, we can't pass it on to nobody. How, how do you guys know about LLCs? We I think we're doing shit class. about in this class. <laughs> 
I didn't know what an LLC, what an LLC was at your age. You <laughs> got exclusive class. I think I did at first. I used to see LLC on things, but I never knew. I what wonder what it was. was. Yeah. We go make an empire. I'm surprised your school even has an entrepreneurship class. You know the story? I think we got it that? last year. Okay. Last you know that year. Most schools don't year. have that. They don't? No? I ain't know that. My school didn't have one. It's pretty pretty rare to have one. Yeah, you know, most of them just teach, you know, history, math and um, tell me about Mr. Coley. What do you you know really like or appreciate about him? I say his personality. He a cool teacher. One of my one of my best teachers. I say he like he's serious, but at the same time, like he one of he not one of teachers that just say do this, do that. He actually get in touch with the work. Like he help you understand something you don't understand, and like he not just one of those teachers that, that sit back, be like this is what I told you to do. And, like so, he a pretty cool teacher. He help you understand what you don't understand. He clearly makes a lot of time for you guys. Is it, was it his lunch period as well when I yeah. walked in, and he's yeah. he's giving away his lunch period to mm -hmm. to be with you guys? Yeah. And when we come back, the final segment: these two young men learning about things that they could only learn thanks to the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurships work in so many schools across this country. And my goodness, to hear these guys talk about the future, to talk about margins, margins in, in a public school, what a good thing. And also about prices and pricing. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we tell so many great business stories there as well. My goodness, the Cornelius Vanderbilt Hour is priceless. Sam Walton's Hour Bernie Marcuses, who is the founder, the co-founder of Home Depot. And all of our great businesses started with an idea. An idea. By the way, those ideas protected by patent laws, protected by all kinds of things, and protected by property rights, conferred by the Constitution itself. This is Our American Stories. The story of these two young men comes to a conclusion in St. Louis after these commercial messages. Our American Stories, and we continue with Alex's story of high schoolers Raheem Larry and Damon McKinney and their business, the Double Backer Packer. That's their pitch. And we're now on to the fun part, the regional sale, that regional pitch competition they're playing in, where they get a chance to win real money and go to New York City for the national competition. Are you ready for this? Uh-huh. To get to tonight's regional competition, Raheem and Daman have already won the pitch competitions for their school and for the city of St. Louis, where they won $100. The uh, plans on spending it? 
or, or saving it. It doesn't just have to be spending. I'm not gonna pay my phone bill. You pay your own phone bill? Your parents don't pay for it? See, my mom, she, she kind of cheap, though. She, she barely want to buy. I mean, her phone supposed to be smart, but it's really not as smart. Does, does it, it do have... crazy things in crazy times. <laughs> but I, I, she, she said I'm like, she said I need to be more responsible and not dependent on anybody. So did she say, I'm only going to get you a smartphone if you no. pay for it? No, I just bought my I bought my own phone. You bought it on your own. Yeah, so she wasn't going to get you a phone. Because sometimes she, like, when we have attitudes, sometimes she, you know, she might be grimy and not pay the phone bill. But so I just bought my own phone on my own account. But I, I paid every bill so far. Wow. So you, you did, she did get you your own phone, no? I pay, I pay for it with my report card money. So if you get uh, good grades? Yeah. Yeah, what do you got? What's your GPA? Right now, I think it's like 3.2, but it's usually 3.6, right. 3.7. What's going on this last semester? Slowing down. Yeah? I think it's because it's the last, like, school almost out, I think. All right. It's slacking <laughs> up, but I, I got good grades for the most part. What do you get, like per A or per B? What's your most time? I get mainly all A's and B's, but I got. What do you get for an A? What's your reward? Oh, uh, I, I don't. It's at church. I don't know. Oh, it's at church. Yeah, your church does this. Uh, so but usually every time I get grades? like hundred fifty dollars. They just started this last, like two years ago last wow. year. That's awesome. You know, when I love going to church for though. Huh? I love going to church for my birthday. Everybody give you a dollar or more. You just like everybody to all those people. On your birthday, they all give you a dollar? Uh huh. Or more, that, just like they I don't know what kind of churches you, you guys go to. My, my I churches think that's don't how do any of this stuff. I just go and give money at church. <laughs> <laughs> all kidding aside, tonight's stakes are the highest they've ever been for these guys. A $1,500 grand prize in the first and second prizes both earn. A trip to New York City, which would be their very first trip to the Big Apple, and an opportunity to compete for a $25,000 grand prize in the national nifty competition. If we subsidently accidentally fail tonight, well, tonight to Accidentally fail. Yeah. That's the only way you're going to fail. Just accidentally. Because we, we might mess it might it most likely it'll be our fault, like a little silly mistake, and they covered it more better than we did. So if we don't do a great job tonight, then we'll, uh, I'll probably think about Shark Tank. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't think most people think about Shark Tank as a backup option. Anyways, to close, I asked Raheem and Damon if they were nervous for the biggest night of their lives. When they call your name or they say it's your turn, it's just nervous walking, but when you get to talk to them, really it's sort nervous. of like trying to anticipate the drop on like, say you your first time driving a roller coaster, trying to anticipate when a big drop gonna come. So it's like, you feel all the pressure, and then when it's dark, you just, okay, this ain't that bad, and you just can go with it. It's now 6 p.m. The competition is about to start. I'm in the pre-reception gathering, interviewing folks, and ran into this guy. So what's your name? Antoine McKinney. Okay. And why are you here, Anton? Uh, my son. Uh, he's doing a double book bag. Oh, great. Double I interviewed bag. your son this morning. Did you? Which one's yours? Damon McKinney. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Are you, how proud are you? I'm proud. Yeah? I'm proud. You ever think be you'd be doing this? this? No, no. I never thought I'd be part of this. <laughs> <laughs> He's the first. Oh, man. Have you seen him present already before? Yes. Were you nervous the first time you presented for him? No. No? No. Why not? It's a growing experience for him. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and a good low-risk way to do it, too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So what do you think about his idea? I think it's brilliant. It's the first. I've never seen one. Yeah. That's the best one I've seen. You see them? They got them right there. Oh, yeah, they, yeah. They're detachable. Yeah. Bluetooth compatible. <laughs> I think Dave Mod's dad is ready to join their sales force. I turned off my microphone and was about to find the next person to talk to when Antoine said something unexpected, and I asked him to say it again. He inspires me. He, your son inspires you? Yes. You're the grown adult, and he inspires you? Yes. How? This is unbelievable what he did. I mean, this invention that he came up with is just incredible. I, I feel like your thoughts are crying. I can yes. see it in your eyes. Yes. Yes. Very proud. Yeah. I'm proud. I'm happy. I inspire me that he's doing something. Yeah. He's going for a goal. He wants something out of life. Oh, man. He's not like his other brothers, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and then it was showtime. Hello, my name is Damon McKinney. It is my business partner. Ron Hitler. And we're here to introduce our business product, the Double Backer Packer. The Double Backer Packer? What's that? Let me explain. The guys did a great job with their eight and a half minute presentation. But then. They had to face the judges. So who would be your first ambassador? So you have this awesome backpack. Who's the first person you're going to go to at your school to ask for wear this to post on social media? Maybe the athletic director. Is the athletic director going to walk around with a double backpack? I don't know. The principal the might do it. We're going to talk about our athletes, as you said. Target your star athletes. You're going to target your star athletes and your captains. Um, that's who you're going to have as your brand ambassadors. That way, they're doing the coolest thing and everyone's going to gravitate towards you. Judges, your time is up. What a learning experience for Raheem and Damon. To have experienced entrepreneurs not just judge them, but to help them think through their venture. And once all the presentations were done, the judges deliberated behind closed doors and came out for the moment everyone had been waiting for. The next two finalists are both qualifying for the New York for the national competition in New York City. And in second place, with receiving a reward of one thousand dollars from Normandy High School, Raheem Larry and Damon McKinnon. They were going to New York, and I will see you guys in New York and cannot wait for it. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And great job as always, Alex. And it might even be interesting to follow these guys one more time before that event. Go up to St. Louis, get to know these families. Because what a story. You know, the dad was saying how moved he was and inspired he was. But he also said, boy, he's different than those other sons of mine. And I can only imagine the circumstances so many of the young boys in that particular school and girls go through. And thanks for all the fine work that the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship does for at-risk kids 
And for kids who wouldn't know what entrepreneurship is, by the way, I'm in a middle class and upper middle class school district where I don't think most of the folks know what entrepreneurship is either, though at least there are any number of small and mid-sized business owner families in that school, and at least the kids can get to meet those families. But in some of the neighborhoods in this country, there's very little ownership of anything in their lives. And my goodness, that hope that could get breathed into the life of a young mind, what's that worth? You heard their voices, and we're going to hear more from these two young men. This is Our American Stories, Rahim and Damon's story, and the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship story, here on Our American Stories. This is our American stories, and it doesn't have to be a holiday for us to honor our veterans and thank them for all of their efforts. They've faced the realities of war and still carry it into their everyday lives once they come home. Ben Sledge is a wounded combat veteran with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He spent 11 years in the U.S. Army, serving a portion of it under the Special Operations Command. He has received the Bronze Star, Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals. Ben now works within the music industry for Heart Support, a nonprofit that helps millennials battling addiction, suicide ideation, depression, sexual abuse, loneliness, broken relationship, and a host of other issues. Here he is beginning a conversation that we might not otherwise have. You can shoot her, the first sergeant tells me, technically. We're standing on a rooftop watching black smoke pillars rise from a section of the city where two of my teammates are taking machine gun fire. Below the small cluster of homes we've taken over is taking sporadic fire as well. He hands me his rifle with a high-powered scope and says, see for yourself. It's the six-year-old girl who gives me flowers. We call her the flower girl. She hangs around our combat outpost because we give her candy and hugs. She gives us flowers in return. What everyone else at the outpost knew, except for me until that day, was that she also carried weapons for insurgents. Sometimes during the midst of a firefight, she would carry ammunition across the street to unknown assailants. According to the rules of engagement, we could shoot her. No one ever did. Not even when the first sergeant morbidly reassured them on a rooftop in the middle of Iraq. Other soldiers didn't end up as lucky. Sometimes they would find themselves paired off against a woman or a teenager intent on killing them, so they pulled the trigger. One of the sniper teams I worked with recounted an evening where he laid up a pile of people trying to plant an IED. It was a turkey shoot, he told me laughing. Then he got quiet and said, eventually they sent out this woman and this dumb kid. I didn't need to ask what happened. His voice said it all. I often wonder what would have happened if the flower girl pointed a rifle at me, but I'm afraid I already know. The thought didn't matter anyway. There was enough baggage from our tours in Afghanistan and Iraq that made coming home a place of uncertainty, anger, and confusion. Not as I had been led to believe, a warm celebration of safety. 
People only want to hear the band of brothers stories, the one with guts and gusto, not the one where you jam a gun in an old woman's face and shoot a kid. I pause and then add, look around the room for a second. Andy surveys the restaurant we're in for a moment while I lean in with a half-sardonic smile. How many people can even relate to what we've been through? What would they rather hear about? How Starbucks is giving away free lattes and puppies this week? Or how a soldier feels guilty because he pulled a trigger, lost a friend, or did morally questionable things and more? Hell, I want to hear about the latte giveaway, especially if it's pumpkin spice. This eases the tension, and he smiles. Annie and I feel like we don't fit in. We met a few years ago at the church where he works and where I volunteer. Of the thousands of people that attend, we are a handful of veterans in the congregation. It's often few and far between that I meet other veterans, and those that I do know or have met typically end up running in the same circles. Years ago, Andy fought in the siege of Fallujah. Readjusting to normal life after deployment didn't happen for us. Instead, we found ourselves overly angry, depressed, violent, and drinking a lot. We couldn't talk to people about war or the cost of it because, well, how do you talk about morally reprehensible things that have left a bruise on your soul? The guilt and moral tension many veterans feel are not necessarily being dubbed as post-traumatic stress disorder any longer, but moral injury. Moral injury refers to the emotional shame and psychological damage incurred when a soldier has to do things that violate their sense of right and wrong. Shooting a woman or child, killing another human, watching a friend die, black humor and laughing about situations that would normally disgust them. Because so few in America have served, they can no longer relate to their peers, friends, family for fear of being viewed as some type of monster or lauded as a hero when they feel the things they did were morally ambiguous or wrong given the nature of the situations they were involved in. The gap between the citizen and the soldier is growing ever wider, whereas in World War II the entire nation's focus was on purchasing war bonds and defeating the Nazis, today's populace is quickly amused by the latest Kardashian scandal on TV because the populace is more concerned about enjoying their freedoms and going about their day-to-day lives, the veteran can feel like an outcast. As though nothing they did mattered for a country that asked them to go. This is part of the problem with the alienation a soldier feels. People can quickly point out that they didn't force them to volunteer for the military and fight in a war. They could have stayed home. The counterpoint to that argument is that because we have transitioned to an all-volunteer force, Those that are opposed should be thanking their lucky stars as the volunteer troops are bearing that burden as opposed to having a draft take place in which they could be in the lottery. Additionally, regardless of whether you're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Communist, Liberal, Conservative, Conscientious, Subjector, or Pacifist, we all sent the soldier overseas. Because we live in a democracy, we vote to put men and women in charge of our governing affairs who send troops overseas. Though we may have voted for someone else or even opposed to sending troops overseas, it does not change the fact that we have put ourselves under the governance of the United States. By living in any country in the world, you are submitting yourself to their governing body and the laws, even if you don't vote. Every country on earth has a military of some sort or defense in place, and the lawmakers elected or dictators ruling send men and young women to fight in foreign lands, sometimes unjustly. By shirking responsibility, we only alienate our soldiers more. The moral quagmires they face on the battlefield only continue to dump the weight of shame and guilt onto their shoulders while we all enjoy the benefits of passing the buck and asking, whose fault is it really? On March 3, 1986, 11 years after the end of the Vietnam War, Metallica released their critically acclaimed album, 
Master of Puppets. On the album, a song entitled Disposable Heroes told the story of a young man being used as cannon fodder in the midst of a war and the terror that enveloped him on the battlefield. Three years later, Metallica would go on to release One, a song about a soldier who has lost all limbs and waits helplessly for death. The song would go on to win a Grammy for Best Metal Performance. In an odd twist, both songs are amazingly popular among members of the United States military. During my time at the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center, we had an entire platoon that could practically sing every last lyric to one. In Afghanistan and Iraq, these songs were on playlists to get soldiers amped before missions. We sang songs about being used by the populace to die on their behalf and coming home as a vegetable, as crazy as that sounds. We sang those songs because they felt true. And the reason they feel true is because of the conversation we refused to have with the country. Amy Abaddon, a Navy psychologist, stated in an interview regarding moral injury that civilians are lucky that we still have a sense of naivety about the, what the world is like. The average American means well, but what they need to know is that these military men and women are seeing incredible evil and coming home without weighing on them and not knowing how to fit back into society. What many don't realize is that a 2004 study found that grief over losing a combat buddy was comparable more than 30 years later to that of a bereaved spouse whose partner had died in the previous six months. The soul wounds we experience are much greater and require the society as a whole to come alongside us as opposed to pointing us to the VA. In most other cultures, soldiers had purification rites when returning home. These rites occurred in a broad spectrum of warriors that ranged from the Roman centurion to the Navajo to the medieval knight. Perhaps most fascinating is that soldiers returning home from the Crusades were instructed to observe a period of purification that involved the Christian church and their community. Even though the church had sanctioned the Crusades, they viewed taking another life as morally wrong and damaging to the soul of their knights. In today's era, churches typically put veterans on stage and praise their heroics or speak of a great battle they've overcome while drawing spiritual parallels for their congregation. But they don't talk about war and the moral inequality we're asking our soldiers to bear on their behalf. Dr. Jonathan Shea, the clinical psychologist who coined the term moral injury, says that in order for the soldier and society to find healing, we must come together. He states that we must come alongside the soldier and confess, what you did was done in our name at our request. We cannot bear your physical wounds or your psychological scars but we can bear the moral responsibility with you. Your transgressions and more, they are our transgressions too. We confess this together and seek forgiveness together. Whether you're opposed to or agree with war, what we must remember is that these are our fellow brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, flesh and blood, who are desperate to reconnect with a world they feel no longer understands them. We must try and find common ground together. We're not asking you to agree with our actions, but help us bear the burden of carrying them on behalf of the country you live in. A staggering 22 veterans take their lives every day, and I can guarantee you part of that is because of the citizen-soldier divide. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if we could help our men and women in uniform bear the weight of this burden they carry? Maybe we rethink exactly what war costs us and what we've asked of those who've gone on our behalf. 
In the end, no one in their right mind wants war. We want peace. And no one wants it more than the soldier. As General Douglas MacArthur eloquently put it, the soldier above all others prays for peace, for he must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. And thank you, Benjamin Sledge. And what he says is so true. You know, take a listen to our hour on Major Dick Winters. Towards the end of his life, he was talking about this very same thing, and this is when there were a lot of survivors to commiserate with. So when you see a soldier who's fought, heed the words of Ben Sledge. This is Our American Stories, the story of a hero and a wounded hero in the soul. Thank you, Glenn. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and here we talk about those who have served our country year-round, not just on a holiday or two, those who decided to make our freedom here their number one priority. While visiting Washington, D.C. for Memorial Day, our own Alex Cortez and Martin Peterson were able to talk to a former CIA officer, Felix Rodriguez. Felix is known for his involvement in the Bay of Pigs invasion and helping to eliminate Che Guevara. More on him later. Felix came to America in 1954 from his home country of Cuba. Here is Felix on his journey to America. I came here back in 1954 for high school in Pennsburg, Pennsylvania. How was it to get over here for school? Was it easier? To, how, how hard was it to well, get out remember, of Cuba? Well, remember, when I came back, it was way before Castro okay, took over. Okay, got it. So it wasn't uh, hard I, then. It was in 1954. I knew my family. I actually, we went to the American embassy to look for a school. I wanted to see a snow so you know, they, you wanted to see snow, you said. Yeah, I never seen snow before, so I wanted a school that that was in, in the cold weather, so I could see snow. Is this a fascination of a lot of Cubans? I, I don't know if it is a fascination, <laughs> or not, but to me, you know, it was interesting to be in an area that there's snow. We've never seen snow in Cuba before. So I went there in 1954. I finally graduated in 1960. Then I actually applied to University of Miami for engineering, and I was accepted. But then when I got to Miami, I learned there was something going up somewhere against Castro. So. I joined the CIA, what later became the Bay of Peak Invasion, so I I never got to go to to university. What exactly did Felix volunteer for instead of going to university? The Bay of Pigs Invasion was an effort by Cuban exiles and the CIA to overthrow Fidel Castro's communist government in Cuba. Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy authorized the plan to train and equip five battalions of infantry and one battalion of paratroopers, Cubans who knew what Fidel Castro would do to their home, their families, and wanted a different future. These 1,400 men landed at the Bay of Pigs on April 17, 1961, and fought with tremendous valor. But as global attention turned to the invasion, President Kennedy was determined to keep U.S. involvement a secret. So in order to prevent the Soviet Union from joining the conflict, he refused to provide air support to the Cuban exiles. Outmanned, outgunned, and unsupported, the Cuban exiles were defeated, and over a 1,000 of them were captured. Castro executed hundreds of people in the following weeks. Felix survived this failed invasion and continued to work in the U.S. government. One of his missions was to find Che Guevara. You've seen his face on T-shirts 
at a college campus near you, and like Castro, Che is poorly understood by many folks. He was really cold-blooded assassin. There's no question about it. He assassinated a lot of my countrymen. I come from Cuba originally. I was also in the Bay of Pigs. And uh, he, I had one story, for example, of, uh, about 40 years ago in Miami of a lady who learned I participated in his capture. And she came to me and asked me, uh, you know, I participated. So she was telling me her story in 1961. Uh, her son, who was 15 years old, was in La Cabana Fort, so he was uh, supposed to be executed. Uh, and then the, she went to plead for his life. And she said that she did receive her, and he had his leg on top of the bureau and said, Lady, what can I do for you? And she said, Comandante, you know, my son is very young, he's 15 years old, I can guarantee he will never do it again. So he asked her what was the name of her son and was, when was he going to be executed. It was a Monday, he was going to be executed on a Friday. So he called an assistant, and she thought that she had saved his life. And his answer was, get the lady so now and execute him now so she doesn't have to wait until Friday. And they killed her son, 15-year-old, right on the spot that same day on a Monday. And I also met one guy who trained Fidel and all the people in Mexico. They call it Coreano, the Korean, because he was in the Korean War and had experience. And he's the one who militarily trained Fidel and Che and Raul and all of those in Mexico. And he used to tell me, that Che used to ask him constantly, what does it feel like when you shoot somebody and you see the blood coming out of him? You know, he had a fascination about assassinating people, which he proved that he did it later on many, many times. Yeah, folks, that's the guy college kids celebrate on T-shirts. But back to Felix. Normal men might have found a beach after the last two missions, but not Felix. No, into the jungles he went. Well, while I was in Vietnam, I developed a helicopter concept that I felt it was going to be effective later on when I saw the war in, in, uh, in El Salvador. So I managed to uh, arrange for me to fly as a volunteer for the Salvadorian Air Force. So I went there in March of 1985 and flew with the Salvadorian Air Force until 1988. How many people volunteer for a foreign government's military? I don't know. While I was there, it was the only one. <laughs> And by the way, it was without pay. It was a problem. I didn't charge them anything for it. You didn't charge them anything? I felt I was doing something, you know, to the same people who destroyed my country. So, you know, it was a satisfaction for me that my concept was, uh, you know, was really helping them, and it did. So, uh, like, for example, in 1988 alone, I flew, like, 298 missions with the Salvadorian Air Force. And so on Memorial Day, who was it? that he was thinking about and honoring. Oh, I remember uh, many of my friends, a lot of them died in Cuba uh, during the Bay of Pigs and after the Bay of Pigs. Uh, some member of my infiltration team, see, I landed in Cuba two months ahead of the invasion to work with the resistance. And of my team, there were about 36, only about 10 of us made it out. The rest were either captured and some of them were executed. I also have some uh, close friends uh, from the Bay of Pigs who served in Vietnam and they will kill in Vietnam, all three of them. One of them received the, uh, the Silver Star for charging against a uh, machine gun that was hitting you know, his, uh, his company. So, you know, I, I have a lot of friends. I served in Vietnam for two and a half years. And Was there anyone you were particularly close to that kind of hurt the hardest? Well, one was uh, Felix Sosa Camejo, who was with me, and uh, we, we were very close friends from the Bay of Pigs, and he's the one who was killed in Vietnam. So, you know, we, we honor the memory of all of those who gave their life uh, for our country here. You know, it, it's, it's really, I'm so happy to see today the way our servicemen are treated. 
Because I remember at the time when I came back from Vietnam because of the resentment against the war, uh, how poorly the American people felt about our troops and how they treated them at the time. And that is so true. It was disgraceful the way our fighting men returned from Vietnam. And you can agree or disagree with the war, but respect the soldiers. They're following orders. And I've got to say, even the harshest critics of the Iraq and Afghanistan war treated our soldiers with respect. It was very different this time around. And that's what makes this country so great. The story of Felix Rodriguez, by the way, awarded a silver star for valor, an intelligence star that's given by the CIA, that too for valor. Felix Rodriguez's story here on Our American Story, celebrating Memorial Day. This is Our American Stories, and we look for stories all over the place. And when we read something great, we call up the author and ask if they'll share the story in their own voice. We first read this piece by Howard Husick in the Wall Street Journal. It's titled, Decades in an Asylum Wasn't the Worst Fate. Howard is the research vice president of the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor to its periodical, City Journal, from which this piece was adapted. Here's Howard sharing the story of a family member. To say that I didn't know my great-uncle Wolf Levine would understate things. I didn't even know of such an uncle, brother of my mother's father, a grandfather with whom I was close. In retrospect, it's clear that he was simply unmentionable. We'd write it off today as the stigma of mental illness. Wolf's story is tragic dating from an era of large public asylums that America has sought to forget. His journey to the Lima State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Lima, Ohio, began in 1910 with a criminal conviction, one to five years in a reformatory for pickpocketing. Six years before, Wolf had immigrated to America at age 14. Theft was not a shocking charge for a young man in Cleveland living on a block of ramshackle frame houses with his widowed mother and her three other children. Once convicted, Wolf would never again be a free man. After less than two years in that reformatory, itself later made famous as the setting for the film The Shawshank Redemption, he exhibited persecutory delusions and auditory hallucinations. That's how he wound up in Lima, where the conditions were so bad that by 1974, when he remained there, a federal judge chastised Ohio for failing to ensure dignity, privacy, and humane care. He died in custody in 1982 at age 92 and was buried near Toledo, the costs covered by a fund for indigents supported by a local Jewish federation. Wolf Levine had spent 72 years in institutions. In the language of latter-day reformers, he'd been warehoused for his entire adult life. His aspiration to be a playwright, the occupation he actually listed when admitted to the reformatory, 
reprove a dark irony for somebody formally diagnosed with dementia precox, schizophrenia, as it later came to be called. Yet the story is not so straightforwardly bleak as it seems, and it casts light on how far America has come and not come in treating the mentally ill. Are we treating the severely mentally ill better today than we did a century ago? Wolf did not do well at that reformatory. In a year's time, more than 300 days were added to his sentence for misbehavior. This almost certainly reflected an onset and worsening of his mental condition. The family may have been involved in the decision to transfer him to the hospital. My great aunt, now nearly 100, my grandmother's sister, recalls my grandparents discussing what to do with Wolf. Dave and Ethel were just starting their own family, she says. They just couldn't take care of him. Nor was his extended family well off. My grandmother's immigrant father was still making deliveries on Cleveland's east side with a horse-drawn wagon well into the 1920s. Thus did Wolf arrive at Lima in 1915. Little information exists on daily life there, but census records portray an institutionalized American melting pot. My great-uncle was listed as a Russian Jew. His neighbors, all of whose occupations were listed as patient, included natives of Alabama, Indiana, Germany, Bohemia, Hungary, England, and Italy. The hospital itself was enormous, with 17 wings for 1,400 patients. It was considered the largest poured concrete structure in the world until the building of the Pentagon. The nationwide hospital system of that era was the product of a 19th century reform movement led by Dorothea Dix and Horace Mann. They'd been outraged by the imprisonment of so many of the mentally ill. By 1940, America was institutionalizing 450,000 people in mental health institutions. Though the care given was far from perfect, it did aspire to be therapeutic. A little-known book provides a remarkable window into the era. In 1931, a 52-year-old journalist named Merle Woodson checked himself into Eastern Oklahoma Hospital in an attempt to kick his alcohol problem. As he dried out, he also wrote, Behind the Door of Delusion, which did not describe a quiet or oppressive warehouse. About me, the daytime activities of the hospital hummed, All the work was done by the patients. There was little detailed supervision by the attendants, although they were there, here and everywhere, all the time. A floor gang polished and shined, and a crew for making up beds did its work with a neatness which would shame many of the maids in good hotels. Patients worked in the art department, bakery, the store, or other departments of the institution. There was darkness, too. I was to learn, Woodson wrote, that a patient who apparently is in sound mind most of the time can suddenly suffer a paroxysm of wild hallucinations and become thoroughly and irresponsibly insane or even dangerously violent, then, after a period, return to an apparently normal state. Straitjackets were used, as were opiates or barbiturate sedatives. My great-uncle may have been restrained or sedated. Such were the limited tools then available. They did not change Wolf for the better. For decades, he was likely a shell of a human being. Yet he also may have found satisfaction in helping with the chores. Perhaps 
while mentally composing plays that would never be produced. He may have been comforted by visits from a Toledo rabbi. He was, without doubt, at least kept safe and warm through the cold Ohio winters. Instead of investing in such facilities when the level of care deteriorated, the movement toward deinstitutionalization shut them down. Today, people like my great uncle end up in prisons and jails. The Bureau of Justice Statistics once estimated that 365,000 adults with serious mental illness are behind bars. They are often kept isolated because of the risk of disruption or suicide. Imagine a latter-day Wolf Levine. After his arrest, he would be given medication for his delusions. If he didn't respond, he might be isolated throughout his jail term. Then he would be released to his poor immigrant neighborhood, either to await another arrest or to complicate life for his family. No one would force him to continue taking medication. If he threatened violence but committed no crime, he could not be involuntarily committed yet he might present a danger. The psychiatrist E. Fuller Torrey estimated in 2013 that 1% of the 12.3 million Americans suffering from serious mental illnesses pose a threat to themselves or others. That's 123,000 people, including those who push subway riders onto the tracks or those who open fire at college campuses. Providing for the severely mentally ill does not mean recreating a sprawling hospital system. At their height, asylums housed many others, the senile elderly, those suffering from what were incurable diseases such as syphilis. The population that would have to be addressed today, those 123,000, is not unmanageable. A doctor at the Kankakee State Hospital in Illinois wrote in 1893, that the public had an obligation to provide every mentally ill person with the benefit of treatment and supervision by a competent physician. Leaving Wolf Levine's successors on the street or in isolation behind bars suggests we have, in practice at least, become not more but less compassionate. And thank you for that story, Howard. Uncle Wolf Levine's story, Howard Husuk's story, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. A great place to study all the things that matter in life. Government, art, history, and of course, philosophy. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and catch their great online courses. The Constitution 101 is about as good as it gets. I went to a great American law school and learned more in that class than I did in three years at the University of Virginia about my own country's founding documents. And then there's a course on C.S. Lewis. And it doesn't get better, folks. It does not get better. And that's about 10 hours. So if you don't think there's any material for you to sit around a computer with and watch with your kids, think again. Uh, That's hillsdale.edu. And I know that the folks at Hillsdale care a lot about sports because they care a lot about character development. And the classical education wasn't just about shaping the mind but the body. And that's why we love to talk about sports, not because we're sports crazed, because the important sports plays in the development of the American character. We learned that when Teddy Roosevelt was talking about football and what he thought football meant and how it shaped men and men's lives. And so we're digging into the life today of Sandy Koufax. And on this day in history, a left-handed pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers set a new National League record for most strikeouts in a single game. And get this, it was 18 What's even more amazing is what happened when this picture wasn't even at his peak. It would be a few years later that the same man would have had what are arguably the greatest six years of any pitcher in baseball history. And again, as I mentioned before, we're talking about Sandy Koufax. He was born in Brooklyn in 1935, and young Sandy never got to know his biological father, but had an extremely strong relationship with his stepfather, Irving Koufax. Taking after his very shy mother, young Sandy was usually very reserved, but he let loose when playing almost any sport. Sandy never intended to become a baseball player, much less a professional, and let alone a Hall of Famer. Here he is with some of his early teammates, coaches, and biographers, describing how he stumbled into this sport. I wound up in baseball almost by accident. Uh, There was a man by the name of Milton Barry who had a sandlot team in Brooklyn, and I guess during infield, he decided I should pitch. My father said, he's going to be a pitcher. I'm going to make him a pitcher. So we have to get him to play with us on our sandlot team. Despite his obvious pitching talent, Koufax gained local fame as a 6'2 forward at Lafayette High School. Ranking second in his division of the public school league in scoring, he earned a college basketball scholarship. For some reason, he fell in love with the idea of Cincinnati University. And just by the accident that the freshman basketball coach was also the varsity baseball coach. I first met Stanley Koufax at the University of Cincinnati. Talking to him, he told me after seeing his play in Madison Square Garden, that was a school that he wanted to attend and play some basketball. And really only went out for the baseball team because he heard that the team was going to be going to New Orleans. I'd never been to New Orleans, so I decided I'd probably be a pretty good baseball player, maybe. He said, hey, coach, I'm a pitcher. And he said, coach, I sure, yeah. Uh, and he said, no, no, I, I pitch in the sandlot. Uh, you know, I was pretty good. I said, kid, the season's over with. I'll take a look at you. And I did take a look at him. And what I saw was unbelievable. And, you know, what's interesting here is, I mean, imagine what we just heard. Sandy Koufax gets into baseball for one reason. He wants to go to New Orleans. And I don't, I don't recall the name of the Medal of Honor winner, 
But David Lennon was interviewing and saying, say, how did you get into the Army? And he said, well, I was working at Subway at night, and I heard about a free T-shirt if I went to sign up for the Army. I had no intention of signing up. I just love the idea of a free T-shirt. And this led to that. He said, I like the pitch. I went back home. I joined the Army. And, of course, Medal of Honor winner. So sometimes the most remarkable things that happen in people's life stories, they aren't exactly planned. Let's go back to the story, though. Koufax had blazing speed as a pitcher, but very little control. Seeing potential in the southpaw, the Brooklyn Dodgers signed the young pitcher, but didn't give him much to do or much opportunity to learn. Here's Sandy with a reporter, and then the legendary Duke Snyder, a Dodger teammate, remembering Sandy's very rough start. My first two years, I just sat in the big leagues and really did very little except watch. And all of a sudden, you realize, you know, you're not trained for your job, and it took a while. I had not pitched. I pitched four or five Sandlot games and four games in college. That's it. My first recollection of Sandy Koufax is in Vero Beach, his first spring, and it was like 10 o'clock in the morning, and Sandy's first pitch went sailing over the backstop, landed on the roof of the press room, clunk, and it woke up a 65-year-old sports fighter who was in there taking a morning nap. <laughs> when he first came up, he couldn't throw a baseball inside the batting cage. Now, that's pretty wild. That is pretty wild. Seeing how poorly Sandy was doing, he began to lose motivation as the Dodgers moved from Brooklyn to L.A. Here's Sandy Koufax, Dodgers general manager, Buzzy Buvesi, some sports writers, and Dodger catcher Norm Sherry, remembering that fork in the road. And by the way, we've all been there in that fork in the road. And this is Sandy Koufax's. It was frustrating. In fact, uh, I asked out at one time. You know, I had an argument with Buzzy in the Coliseum. When we moved to Los Angeles, I said, you know, I want to get out of here. He came to me in the tunnel of the Coliseum and said that he was retiring, he was going home. And I said, well, when are you leaving? He said, tomorrow. I said, we'll be in my office tomorrow morning. I'll have the ticket for you. Pervasi told me that in the back of his own mind, he was thinking, I'm throwing down the gauntlet to Koufax. It, you know, it's up to him now to pick it up. Later, he came to me and he said, uh, I've got to go back to spring training next year and give it a real shot, real shot. And if I still feel the same way, I'm going to quit. He gets to spring training in 61, and he's scheduled to pitch in a split squad game against the Twins in Orlando. First pitch, I think I called for a curveball, and it was a ball, and I called for a changeup, was a ball, and, and then I called for a fastball, and it was a ball, and we had the bases loaded. Now he hadn't thrown any strikes, and I said, Sandy, what you really need to do now is take something off the ball. I said, lay it in there and let them hit the ball, and we'd get some outs. I went back behind the plate, and uh, he just wound up and just said, here, hit the ball. Well, nobody hit the ball. He struck out the side. And uh, it worked out. You know, I pitched the eight innings. I pitched a no-hitter for the eight innings. And I think it was the, the start of my attitude changing. Well, Norm Sherry taught him to relax his grip a little bit, relax his body, and he got complete control of his body to where he was a fantastic pitcher. Best I've seen. And by the way, we learned about that relaxation from Al Pacino. I remember in our hour we did on him, he talked about how he would repeat the fervent prayer of Michelangelo's when he was painting the Sistine Chapel, and that was, Lord, free me from myself so I can serve you. And that was the way that Al Pacino would relax. And in the end, that's what Sandy Koufax needed to do. He had all this talent, but he just couldn't relax on the mound. So now he's able to control his raw power. Sandy Koufax then hits his stride. Let's listen again to sports writers and Sandy's fellow players, 
many of them Hall of Famers themselves and players with 20-plus seasons under their belts. And the awe is still evident. I don't think anybody's ever had six years like Sandy Koufax had from 1961 to 1966. He won three Cy Young Awards when there was only one Cy Young Award given for both leagues. Pitchers sort of have the unofficial triple crown of wins, strikeouts, and earned run average. Now, Koufax won that triple crown three times in a four-year period. Sandy reading signs into his wind-up 2-2 pitch. Fastball got him swinging. Catching him was like, well, we're going to kick somebody's ass tonight. His mechanics were so pure, he looked like he wasn't even throwing hard. He was like throwing 98 miles an hour, you know. Sandy's hands, if you look at it, could almost go right around the equator of a baseball and touch. At the very end of Koufax's delivery, his left shoulder would rock back. It was like the recoil of a rifle. He threw so hard that the muscles were adjusting and pushing his shoulder back. And I've never seen that in any other pitcher. He was snake-like. He was elegant and powerful. It was just awesome to see the twist in that arm, the tremendous power. Every ounce of strength that he had went into that pitch. Koufax came straight over the top, which gave his ball extra spin and rotation would give it that little flare at the end where the ball would rise six to eight inches as it uh, crossed home plate. He had more than heat. He had that massive curveball. I mean, we call it a yellow hammer. Drops off the table. And when we come back, more on the life of Sandy Koufax. He struck out 18 batters on this day in history. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue with Amity Schley's. We want to talk about what was in the air at the time, because progressivism was ruling the day, but not just on the left, on the right, too. The right-wingers were playing with the idea of following the strongman over in Italy, Mussolini. They were fascinated some. And on the left, boy, they were really interested in what was going on in Russia. Stuart Chase had this to say, Russia, I am convinced will solve for all practical purposes the economic problem. Excited by central planning, he added, why should Russians have all the fun remaking a world? Amity, talk about these two uh, points in the axis far away from each other. The right-wingers' infatuation with Mussolini and the left with the things that are going on in Moscow. Well, let's spend a while on the right and Mussolini. Yeah, because that's important. The right really liked Mussolini. You can see uh, Henry Luce of Fortune and Time giving attention to Mussolini and less to, say, Calvin Coolidge of the late, because they thought, well, maybe this is the model for Europe. The trains run on time under Mussolini. We've all heard that cliche. Yep. But more than that, uh, he was a powerful man, a forceful man, a man uh, who seemed modern and energetic, not lazy, and he inspired others. Mussolini. Nobody can know until later how much of a dictator he would be. Um, so we want to give them the benefit of history and not not judge um, even more harshly than we already do. Right. But and um, what were the features uh, of Mussolini's plans that intrigued people? Well, one was he believed in the economy. Bigger is better. The economy of scale. There was enormous infatu- infatuation generally with the idea of the economy of scale. Another was his emphasis upon technology, not only trains that run on time, but trains 
that are good trains. Well, maybe it takes a big thinker to run a network. There was none of the idea today that we have today, which is a network might evolve organically. I mean, the, 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 a concept such as the Internet, which grew up almost by accident, serendipitously, was not a concept for them. It had to come from the mind of a big man with political chutzpah, right. force, you know, uh, and they just didn't think things just grew up. So if we're going to be modern, we need a figure like Mussolini, especially in a chaotic, otherworldly place like Italy, Pius, right? Well, is piety modern? We're not sure. Uh, so, so all these things were, were going on, and the U.S. was infatuated with Mussolini, both left and right, but perhaps much more astoundingly right. Yep, and on the left, uh, this uh, infatuation, as I read, Stuart Chase, one of these great minds of the time, and this is bankers, economists, the people who ended up comprising FDR's brain trust. And by the way, Amity, what's interesting now is no one knows how things are going to happen. We had David McCulloch on, and he just said, you know, no one, not, nothing had to happen the way it happened. That's, that's how he started off our talk about history. Nothing had to happen the way it happened. And by the way, the guys then didn't know what was going to happen. So everybody's looking at all of these various theories and thinking, which one is going to emerge triumphal? It's a crossroads for the world in economic history. So talk about that infatuation with things Russian, and then talk about how that influenced the New Deal and FDR's brain trust. Yes, well, from the point of view of an economist, perhaps Russia and Italy were not so different, if you're thinking economically, in the way they thought. Oh, well, how many time zones are there in the new Soviet Union? Economy of scale. They can do things better than we can because they can do them bigger. Think of how we think of China today, and there's a certain kind of personality that's infatuated with the size of China, what Martin Wolf has called a sizist, right? Bigger right. is better. Mm-hmm. It, that was the feeling about Russia, and why not? If you could capture that market, well, it was a rather significant market. It, it, if you could capture Europe, if Europe, Europe standardized following Mussolini's lead, well, that would be a big market, too. Maybe we could have the euro one day. So, <laughs> some of these ideas were not foreign, I don't know if they called it the euro, but the point being, we're not so foreign to, to ideas we envision right. today as, as perhaps beneficial to growth in, ec- in, in an economy. So there they all were. They didn't know how bad it was in Russia. They didn't want to know. Uh, and some of the same people who, like Mussolini, were interested in Lenin and then Stalin. Um, Stuart Chase, I think he was sort of um, a nicer fellow, than some of the economists, but like some of the popular economists today, he came um, from an accounting background. He loved the economy of scale. He was infatuated with it. And he said, these men in Russia, this is in Forgotten Man, I write about this, they salt down an economy like a, a fishmonger salts down a batch of fish. In an afternoon, the Russian leadership will just allocate the whole economy of Russia at a table after a few cigarettes. Wow, are they amazing what they dare to do. Um, so uh, the U.S. went over and looked at Russia. Um, U.S. thinkers, not too many, because we didn't recognize Russia. Our government didn't recognize Russia in the 20s. Um, but a few of them, and in The Forgotten Man, I describe uh, an, uh, a meaningful trip 
around 1927 when a few junior U.S. economists and junior labor people went over to Russia and said, wow, this is amazing, and they all wrote stories about it. This is amazing. We're the Sherpas. We're seeing what is our own future, as in Lincoln Steffens. I have seen the future, and it works, and maybe we can import some of that or replicate it in the United States. Now, we know now what was going on. We know now about the Ukrainian famine, but it's possible to, um, again, to say, well, maybe they didn't know all the way then. They were certainly given a Potemkin village, a, a prettified Russia to look at on this particular trip in 1927, which is a few chapters in in The Forgotten Man. How did these people and these ideas and this trip go on to influence FDR, Amity? I just want to back up and say one thing. Um, The people who were not blinkered about it, who understood what was awful in Russia and even under Mussolini, were people of faith. Because Stalin knocked down, paved over churches. Lenin, the same. And they were demonstrating right down Fifth Avenue the whole time. And, and people we, of faith, people of faith are seeing it from a very different vantage point, not economics, but they know that there's a spiritual battle going on. And when you knock down the cross, uh, well, this is going to get Christians antsy, and they're almost harbingers, don't you think? In in a sense, Amity, they know. I think they often are. When yeah. you not in, the, you know, when you think of um, the Christians of the Middle East, yep. they they know what's going on. This isn't humane because a man's faith is part of his soul. Yeah. And God meant for us to be God meant for us to be free. And God meant for us to be free. Oh, I don't mean to say it so so dogmatically, but many of us believe that. So yes. so it's it's it is a litmus test or, you know, the canary in the mind when when a regime won't tolerate faith, it won't tolerate a lot of other things. I think you could say that. Yep. So so whoa, they're looking at the churches and that is why the US did not recognize the Soviet Union. The the big stumbling block for Franklin Roosevelt, he did recognize the Soviet Union was the church. And he actually asked his Soviet interlocutor, you know, you're you know, when your parents die, you're going to pray for them, aren't you? I mean, what, what do you, why do you, why don't you care about the church in your country? Why isn't it important? But eventually, Franklin Roosevelt was willing to overlook the abuse of faith in the Soviet Union in the name of recognition for economics. He saw trade with Russia. He thought that would help us in the Great Depression, so he was going to overlook whatever happened uh, to the church. And do you think on some, in some respects he was thinking what some people here think? Trade with China will help the Chinese be free, or trade with Iran will help Iran be free, or trade with Cuba will help Cuba be free? I mean, are there well-intentioned people who think this? Sometimes that's true. And sometimes it's true. It's it's so true. These are hard calls. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, well, maybe economics is the way, you know. Uh, So so it's a very, very uh, tough call. But anyway, um, that was part of the story. And to sum things up on the on the progressive impulse as we head into the New Deal, I mean, in the end, Amity, I think the, the best and the brightest, as we learn, um, ultimately get wrapped up in their own ability to think they can solve these problems. To what degree is hubris just a part of this story on any side of the political aisle? What part of, of just human nature has to do with a lot of this history writing? Human nature has to do with it all. And that's why history is so chancy, as David McCullough was 
saying, quoting another historian, probably. So it, 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 Roosevelt could have not enjoyed Maxime Litvinov and said, I, I'm not going to recognize them. There could have been no Great Depression, and we could have not trucked with Russia, right? Had trucked with Russia and, and recognized um, it, there could have been, the, the Mensheviks could have won in Russia. Right. They just happened not to. And Kerensky came here. So so all these 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 momentous turns happen, and often character has as much to do with it as, um, I don't know, economic facts. Yeah, and in fact, character may, may in, in the end, determine them. I, I remember, you know, one of my favorite books is 1776, and I think it becomes pretty clear that the character of a few men helped shape the country, Amity. I mean, I don't know if there's a country without the character of, you know, a couple of dozen guys. That's right, and, you know, how much they're bullies matters a lot. What I like about Coolidge is uh, his character, that he he held back. He held back the whole progressive flood for a good decade. Yeah, and you're right about Washington because he held back. Uh, he went back home. Uh, they wanted him to continue to rule, and he said, look, it's your country now. I'm going home. I'm going back to farming. I'm going back to my life in Mount Vernon. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We've spent the hour with Amity Schles, an overview of the Great Depression, and we're going to continue this series in the coming months in more detail. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Catch this and our last discussion on the Great Depression. Thanks so much for everything you do, Amity. Thank you. You bet.